0: The Memories.
1: The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20-10, to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, a winner. It won't be this time.
0: The Stories. Krukop to the corner for Carrington. Intercepted!
1: Witherspoon, With the biggest play in Colorado football for years!
0: And now, as a supplement to over 40 years' worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game
2: podcast. Greetings Buff fans from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See You at the Game website and your host for the See You at the Game podcast. Well, we are now into the meat of the 2021 season as the Buffs opened Pac-12 conference play on the road last weekend against Arizona State. It was still a game in the third quarter with CU down only 14-10, but then the Sun Devils took over, emerging with a 35-13 victory. I will be joined in a moment by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we will dissect the Buffs' loss in the desert and where Colorado sits in the very jumbled Pac-12 South. We'll then turn our attention to the upcoming home conference opener against USC, a team which, if it is possible, has a fan base more disgruntled than that of CU. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast where you normally find your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. The more and better ratings we get, the easier it is to get the podcast out to the rest of the Buff Nation. Colorado carries into its game against USC a 14-game losing streak, having never beaten the Trojans in a series which dates back to 1927. Can the Buffs pull off an upset? Let's find out. Okay, and we are back. And I'm actually live in Highlands Ranch with Brad Geiger. We played in the... Buffs for Life Golf Tournament today being Monday. Brad, thank you for letting me stay at your house while we uh, went out and played in the heat and did not uh, play particularly well, but we did not finish last. So a good day overall.
0: Most definitely and a lot of fun. Lots of uh, former Buffs out there. And if you do get a chance, check out the Buffs for Life. They do great work for former Buffs. and. It was a beautiful day, and we hit the ball repeatedly.
2: Yes. More than we were supposed to, I believe.
0: yes, Certainly more than many people, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, but uh, our goal was not to finish last, and hopefully mission accomplished. And Neil Langland, of course, is joining us from high atop Larimer Square. How is Neil doing today? Well, you know, I'm still
1: still hurting a little bit from the weekend, but taking some solace from the nice weather here and maybe a few positives from the game. I'm hoping I'm not imagining those things, but trying to be positive about this.
2: okay, well let's let's start with that. 35 to 13, not exactly a, a close game. Well, it was 14 to 10 early in the third quarter. Um, So I guess that's maybe one of the positives that you're taking from this is that it was a a close game until midway through the third quarter.
1: Well, yeah, I think special teams and the defense had played decently well up to that point. The offense came out and was unlike it had been for the past eight or nine quarters in the previous eight or nine quarters and moved the ball and just seemed to be hitting a stride. I'm not sure if that's just halftime adjustments or a pep talk or what, but they showed the capability. We have existence proof now that they can do it.
2: Why they stopped, hard (laughs) to know. Yeah, one drive, uh, one touchdown in the last, I guess it would be 11 quarters now. So do you have any optimism coming out of Tempe, Brad? Optimism. You know, the defense is what we expected
0: it to be. And we'll get better against USC with the addition of Mustafa. The offense, I'm still concerned. I mean, we assume that Cole Durrell and Darren Sheverini are not idiots and that they therefore have some idea what Brendan's skill set is and still we're not seeing the plays we expect to see. So I hope that they can find some playbook that works somehow to – Open up this offense. We're not going to win a lot of games scoring that many points.
2: Yeah. Averaging uh, 13 points a game, take away the Northern Colorado game, and we're averaging seven points a game. So, you Neil know, Brandon Lewis was seven for 17 for 67 yards. And that include a, included a shovel pass that was the longest play on the offense for the game. Longest plays or the best offense we had in terms of the passing game was throw the ball deep and get a pass interference penalty. That worked a couple of times. So on the bright side of things, again, trying to be optimistic, do you think that Brendan Lewis had a better game? Did Brendan Lewis show some signs of making decisions more quickly, some signs of understanding the offense more, some signs of, Reason to give fans hope for the future. I think there was a faint
1: sign of improvement as Brad described last week. I think he, I think Lewis gets back and holds the ball, holds the ball. He was still doing that this last week. They allowed him to run and he demonstrated his talent there. I'm afraid that. He got drilled so many times during that game that they're not going to be able to do that much and that he's still going to have to become a passer.
2: And his progress there is still painfully slow. Yeah. Well, how about the defense, Brad? Uh, Well, first, let's stick with the offense. Jarek Broussard became the fastest to 1,000 yards in CU history, getting to 1,001 yards in nine games. Passing Charlie Davis, who uh, took 10 games in 1971 to get to 1,000 yards. But, of course, the last several games, you would have thought that Derek Persaud would have got to 1,000 yards in maybe seven or eight games as opposed to nine games. So not exactly tearing it up. Alex Fontenot did have some positive runs, got 65 yards. Overall, 183 yards rushing. That will win you some games if you have 183 yards passing. You might win some games, but 183 yard rushing is uh, probably productive uh, enough to, to win some games. It should be. And
0: the line showed a little bit more life. There were times that there was space. We are clearly a running back by committee team. That decision has been made. I don't know if it's because Broussard isn't running as well. He still feels a step off and I don't know what's going on. It's possible to imagine that at home against a not great defense that we truly could run the ball 30 times and hold the ball for 35, 40 minutes and just dominate that way. But the line has to continue to improve. I will say
2: that they were better last week than they were the week before. Okay. Well, grading on improvement. Neil, the defense did give up 439 yards. A lot of that was in the second half when it went from a 14 to 10 game to a 35 to 13 final couple of untimely penalties on Terrence Lang face mask is just, it happens. You know, he was reaching for the quarterback. Would have had a sack on a third down. Then he also got to roughing the passer penalty on a third down, which led to another touchdown. So twice on a third down, which would have been play and, you know, down or series ending plays turned into first and tens that turned into touchdowns, any concerns about the defense, or are there too many concerns about the defense? I think some of the latent concerns
1: I had came into full view on Saturday. the see, on many occasions, see you which stuff runs and get enough pass rush to disrupt that play, but so many of ASU's gains were on big plays, plays of 10 yards or more, reverses, uh, scrambles, quarterback keepers that went for long, long yardage. And that's something that CU had not shown before. I, I think one, it's a, an adjustment thing at halftime, two, it's a fatigue factor perhaps, and three, it's... I think the talent disparity between their offense speed and quickness and ours. Plus I want to add something about scheme. I was watching Carson Wells and I don't think that he is a five or seven technique hand in the ground player. He needs to be in a stance off the line of scrimmage. He's not a four, three defensive end. And really he has been taken out of the defense. And I think, that's part of it. That doesn't explain the whole thing, but I just wonder if the scheme really fits the players
2: that they have. And I'm starting to doubt that. Well, we've had enough shots at offensive coordinator Darren Cheverini, so you're saying that defensive coordinator Chris Wilson is also a concern for you. Beginning to be, yes, I recognize that it's hard
1: to um, to change cultures. But I still think you have a coach has to adapt to what his players can do and the, the players they have on hand and not the players that they wish they had. A 245 pound outside linebacker is no match for a 315 pound tackle when it comes to pass rush
2: or setting an edge. Well, so, Brad, we uh, got a defensive player back and lost a defensive player on the same day. Lloyd Murray entered the transfer portal. His stats for the year, two games, 43 plays, one tackle. But on the positive side, Mustafa Johnson, who left, went for the NFL, didn't get into the NFL, petitioned the NCAA to actually come back. And Lord of mercy, the NCAA let him come back. There was some suspension four-game holdout, something that went along with him not being able to play, but he is now eligible to play. Will having one of the best players from CU Defense 2020 help allay Neil's concerns about the defense 2021? I
0: really do think that Carson Wells is likely to be the best, the biggest beneficiary of Mustafa coming back. At their best last year, and we have no idea what kind of shape Mustafa is in. We hope he got into shape to try to play in the NFL. If he can be back to his demanding a double team kind of guy, then that may open up for uh, Carson. Um, Everybody knows how much I thought he was going to have a great year, and he simply has not done that. He is not putting the pressure on the quarterback that we absolutely need. So one would hope that if we can get a little bit more press from the interior there. He can open up a little bit more on that defense. Gonzalez and Landman are the ones who are playing the way we want them to. We are not as fast in the secondary as we need to be. We are not getting pressure on the quarterback. Like we have to, to make up for the lack of speed in the secondary. So Mustafa, we're asking a lot of him. He's done it in the past.
1: Those are good comments, Brad. I wish I'd said
2: that. Well. Let's talk a little bit about the Pac-12 South in general. I guess my frustration for the CU season to date is partially due to the fact that the Pac-12 South is so wide open that any team of competence can compete for a division title. It is not heavy at the top, and we'll certainly be talking a lot about USC here in a minute, but UCLA apparently now is the front runner. And UCLA looked less than Stellar against Fresno State two weeks ago. Utah has already lost to San Diego State and BYU and was behind Washington State at home in the fourth quarter this past weekend before making it, you know, turning it around and coming out with the 24-13 victory. Even, you know, even Arizona's some shown signs of life, but well, it finally collapsed in the fourth quarter against Oregon. So, is there still hope for the one and three, zero and one Colorado Buffaloes to compete in the Pac-12 South, considering how mediocre the Pac-12 South is?
0: It's um, who are we not as good as in the Pac-12 South? Well, <laughs> Arizona State, we know that. Probably UCLA. We are, I continue to think, better than Arizona, which is deplorable. The rest of us, I guess we'll find out about USC this week, but this is a conference with glaring weaknesses. And if CU can, it doesn't even have to right the ship. It just has to lower the list and get a little (laughs) bit less bent over, could still compete, which is terrifying. And I'd hate to think what would happen to us against the better teams in the North, but we have a chance. That's the sad part. It remains there, not because of anything we've done.
2: The four and two, well, at one point, four and O buffs of last year, certainly would have competed or at least arguably competed in the PAC 12 South of 2021. So Neil, do you share the thought that despite Colorado having one touchdown in the last several games of play against FBS competition, that there is some magical turning of the switch on offense and defense that will make Colorado competitive in every game left on the schedule.
1: There's no magical switch, and I don't think they'll be competitive against UCLA. However, from the current data that we have, CU needs only to improve to mediocrity to have a chance at winning the division. (laughs) And they can take a big stride in that direction this week if they can plug in the OSU formula against USC. It seems to be a a decent matchup, and I'm not going to predictions here. I'm not doing that yet this week. I think CU has a chance against USC. And from that, they could possibly build to win maybe another three games in the conference, maybe four. Not sure that's going to be enough, but it's approaching respectability.
2: If the Buffs had held on for the final two minutes and 41 seconds against Texas A&M, would the mentality of this team been completely different? Would the Minnesota game been completely different? Or... Was it just they played above their heads against Texas A&M and then were shown for what they were against Minnesota?
0: Well, let's remember Texas A&M isn't quite who we thought they were. They were a little overrated. But, yeah, I mean, going back and reconstructing is always a challenge. But whereas we all took optimism from the performance against A&M, it doesn't feel like the team took that. And I don't know why. And, of course, it's so hard to look past how atrocious they looked against Minnesota. You know, if we played Minnesota tough and then gone to Arizona State, honestly, a game that we all thought beginning of the season was going to be a challenge. We'd have a very different position. It's not maybe we just need to assume Minnesota was, if not an aberration, at least the worst this team could play. And then – hope that they will get better because, again, we are not better than Oregon. We are likely not better than UCLA. Other than that, on our schedule, maybe Washington, while we made, we will not be favored over anybody but Arizona, we can still play with them.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, the again, the frustrating part of all this is that, you know, the Washington that lost to Montana, Minnesota that lost to Bowling Green, Where is Colorado coming up, rising up to the challenge? I guess Texas A&M would be rising up to the challenge, but we chose the wrong week to rise up to the challenge. We picked the wrong team to play well against. We should have played well. If we played well against Minnesota or Arizona State, there was a chance at a victory, and now we're sitting at one and three, going up against a team we've never beaten, staring one and four right in the face. More sides, for Neil. I,
1: in previous uh, episodes of "See You at the Game" podcast, I had talked about uh, the psyche, and you had mentioned it in your write-ups and your tips of the Minnesota game of not losing twice. I'm not sure this team has recovered its swagger. If they can do something to recover some confidence and play with a little more, a little more life. Uh, I think they have a chance against USC. I think they have a chance against everybody, except as you mentioned, Oregon. So if the coaches now have to, it's a matter of psychology. And Coach Barnett on the broadcast talked about trying to get these kids' minds and, and hearts right. If they can do that, there's still some possibilities for this team.
2: Yeah. Well, and even Oregon shows has shown some warts that Arizona on a 15 game losing streak dating back to 2019 was only down 24 to 19 in the fourth quarter in Eugene against number three, Oregon. So even the Ducks can be played against if the team is properly prepared and motivated. So let's talk about this weekend and we'll move on to our tips for USC. The best way to start would be, of course, talking about USC's last game, which was a 45-27 to loss to Oregon State, which was historic on many levels. The first win for the Beavers in the Coliseum since the Eisenhower administration. We're going back to 1960. And it wasn't that Oregon State got six turnovers. And it was played in the rain, and six starters for USC got hurt. And, you know, there weren't all these things. They had several turnovers. They had double-digit penalties and still completely dominated USC. I watched some of that game, and they were dom- – you know, both the lines of scrimmage – USC was not there to play. They, you want to talk about a template for beating USC? They had 322 yards rushing. Brad talked about having the offense, you know, the offensive line and Broussard and Fontenot take the heat off of the quarterback, Brandon Lewis. Well, no better way to do that than run for 322 yards. Now, they are playing with an interim coach. They did have their quarterback, Keaton Slovis, get hurt in the Washington State game. And in comes Jackson Dart, who throws for 391 yards in 45 straight points. But then, of course, this you know, there's a stat. Jackson Dart threw for 391 yards against Washington State. Brandon Lewis has 313 yards passing for the season in four games. But then Jackson Dart was injured, and we're back to Keaton Slovis. Now, Keaton Slovis had 355 yards of passing against Oregon State, but he also had three interceptions, and the fans in the Coliseum, those that were left at the end of the game, were not too pleased with this, you know, savior that was going to be, well, his first team All-Pac-12 preseason. He was first team All-Pac-12 last year. This was the number 15 team in the country in the preseason polls. College football playoff because the South was so decimated that there was a path for USC. They don't play Oregon or Washington from the North. So the schedule laid out perfectly for them. And yuck. USC is playing about as poorly as we've seen USC play for many years. So I guess, Brad, first comments on Oregon State and the fact that uh, USC has two losses, both at home, got killed by Stanford, got killed by Oregon State. They have two losses at the Pac 12. They're not exactly a front runner at this point.
0: And they're not losing to good teams. Stanford and Oregon State are fine. Maybe
2: Colorado ish.
0: Ish. Yeah. There's no reason to believe that they are substantially better than Colorado. You know, Slovis threw for 355. He also threw it all over. And at times, it for somebody who threw for 355, there were times he looked completely confused by where he was supposed to be throwing the ball. He is a, a strange, talented kid who just seems to get in his own head. And the USC fans were not having it. <laughs> they, I, whether or not the team has done, the fans are. So, I don't know where they're finding confidence. I don't know what they think is going to be their turnaround. They There was nothing for them to take out of that last game to make them think that suddenly they've turned a corner. So these are two struggling teams, and we usually don't get to see a struggling USC team. That's not what comes to Colorado most of the time.
2: Yeah. So, Neil, what did you uh, take out of a two-and-two USC team that rallied behind the interim coach to turn a 14 to nothing deficit in Pullman to a 45 to 14 route and then turn around and get smoked by a motivated Oregon State team in the Coliseum.
1: If we believe that the rating services of talent, uh, the recruiting websites are anywhere near close to accurate on USC's talent level. I think that implies that, and I don't want to be a dime store psychologist here, is that the team is going through the motions. The acting head coach was not one of the coordinators elevated. That may be causing some friction among the coaching staff, but it sounds at this point like they're just completely dizzy, like they've been twisted the party game. And now they're completely disoriented and perhaps unmotivated. And this is perhaps, despite CU's difficulties, the best opportunity that CU will have to break
2: through on USC and finally get a win. Well, short of a couple of years ago, we had a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter and lost that. But (laughs) I digress. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it does seem odd to have... Todd Orlando, defensive coordinator, Graham Harrell, much renowned offensive coordinator, guru for the air raid offense, was a Texas Tech, threw for miles and miles under his offense. And our former athletic director, Mike Bone, elevated a position coach. And when you're only playing a couple of games, so you look at Colorado when we've had these types of situations, Dan Hawkins was fired after the Kansas game. The unbelievable come from ahead, twenty-eight point fourth quarter in Lawrence. Brian Cabral was elevated and see you won this next two games. You know, did not win the final game, still end up with a five and seven season. But the team was well motivated. Compare that to Mike McIntyre and his demise when it. Seven game losing streak to end the 2018 season, the team against Utah. And then we had a weird end of season game against Cal on the road. I think against Cal, we were behind like 21 to nothing with seven minutes gone in the first quarter. So this is an odd situation where you fire the coach after two games. How are they going to play out this string? And they have enough talent on the roster to beat pretty much anybody they're going to play, except for maybe Notre Dame. Will they turn it around against uh, Colorado, Brad? Or is that uh, you agree with Neil that maybe they've already packed it in, even though the calendar is yet to officially hit October?
0: Well, the thing that struck me is when they fired the USC coach, we have heard approximately 1,273 rumors about who's going to take over that Position, none of them involving the current staff.
2: Yeah, this, this is true. This
0: is not a vote of confidence. We you ask what the players are planned for? They don't know. You ask what the coaches are planned for, their next job somewhere else.
2: Yeah.
0: That is not a prescription for a fired up team to go on the road. Is it possible that their substantial talent advantage will out? Almost certainly. There is no reason to believe that they cannot throw extensively against C. But when the going gets tough, these guys go sit on the bench. And if we can make it tough, if something can happen that can make it tough, this is a weird SC team that could just fold.
2: Well, if the Colorado offense can generate some semblance of consistency, let me tell you, Neil, about my concern. There's a gentleman that, regardless of what happens to the rest of the team, is going to be playing in the NFL next year, and that's the wide receiver, Drake London. And he is a first-round talent, and he, had, he has 540 yards receiving, 39 catches. He had some 150 yards, 165 yards against Oregon State.
0: On 10 catches, averaging 16 yards a catch.
2: And here's, you know, Neil, you alluded earlier about the chunk plays that Arizona State had. Well, a lot of those chunk plays, they were these little wide receiver screens. It seemed like it was just a repeat of a bad movie, but they pass out to the sideline. Christian Gonzalez, number three, would be there fighting off a block. Mark Perry would come up from the safety position and push the receiver out of bounds, 10 or 12 yards down the field. They just did that play over and over and over again. And if you get that play with Drake London, he's going to say, hi, Mr. Perry, goodbye, Mr. Perry. And it's going to turn, you know, a little dump off pass into a 60 yard touchdown. Can Colorado find a way to have a game plan that is going to contain even Keaton Slovis, and Drake London?
1: Oh, let's see. Let me try to answer that specifically with respect to game plan in that CU's defense this year and even last has had difficulty with the wide receiver screen. It just seems not to be able to keep those under three or four yards. They're chunk plays just about every time with every opponent. We stop it once in a while, but not frequently enough, it's a major weakness. I don't know how the defensive coordinator is going to get around that, but it has to get better. The other thing I think might happen is with their talented receivers and if Slovis is playing like himself, they'll be able to throw the ball anywhere they want because of our lack of pass rush, even if we get our returning defensive end to play. So I'm I'm thinking that CU's weakness is going to be their pass defense. And if they can just get some pressure and find some way to defense that wide receiver screen, they should be in okay shape. The second component of the answer is something Brad built on is why are these guys playing? And I think the player in question here for USC would take a page from the Bosa family and just quit, get ready for the draft. What does he have to gain? He's already demonstrated what he can do. Maybe other players are thinking the same thing, and the coaches are like people we saw in class that were in an economics class and doing their physics homework. You know, they're they're looking down the road. They're just they've been told by Bone that they are not candidates. They're just custodians of the program for the next few weeks. Uh, I think that's going to be a dark cloud, regardless of how competent the USC talent is sorry for the rambling answer.
2: No, no, that's fine. I mean, and I mean, if you're coaching for your next job, obviously you're going to want to do as well and you want your unit to do as well as possible, but where it becomes a problem for the team is that it becomes fragmented that the defensive line coach wants the defensive line to do well. And that doesn't necessarily mesh with the linebackers doing well, or You know, the defensive coordinator wants to do everything that he can, even if that comes at the expense of something going on with the offense, that everyone has their own little fiefdom, and there becomes some sniping there in the coach's room. As far as who's got the talent players, I want you to throw more to my wide receivers because I'm the wide receivers coach, and I want them to have good stats so I can use that on my resume for the next job. Whereas the running back coach and the offensive line coach want to show a dominating rushing attack. And you've got, yeah, young 18, 19, 20 year olds that don't know who to have show their loyalty to. And maybe perhaps USC is not quite as talented as we thought. There was a blistering article in the athletic where, and if if you're not subscribing to the athletic folks, it is so worth it i mean not, this is not a paid for you know not a paid promotion but if you want to learn about college football you want to learn about sports subscribe to the athletic and they were talking about how usc recruiting staff during the clay helton era would call up the recruiting services and ask them we're, we've got we're going to offer this kid and he's going to accept you need to make him a four star oh. and they I were see. bumping up recruiting ratings, and it was – I'm not sure why this isn't getting more play nationally, but this was a, a blistering story saying that USC's recruiting, their rankings were largely based upon the recruiting folks at the USC asking 24-7 sports and rivals to, you know, please b- bump up our recruits so that we have all these – four star recruits on our sheet which of course we've suspected that's always been the case anytime that you know c u offers an underrated player they might get two stars and maybe get to a three star whereas yeah as soon as c u offers somebody and they accept and then they get offered by a higher school you know then it, that's when their recruiting rating goes up not when c u offers but when the bigger schools offer but Going off on a rant, maybe the USC roster is not as talented as we feared. Well, and talent is not everything. As you've
0: noted, it's not just that that coaching staff is divided. It's that they are none of them loyal to the head coach. There is, it feels like no leadership. They are not playing as a team. They are playing as a group of units. And yeah, it is possible to have highly talented players who are not well coached. Just yeah. as in the past, we have had technically less talented players who are better coached. Not everyone is Nate Landon, is yeah. the short version of it. Physical talent is what you rate for three or four stars. Wanting to play even when it's hard is not judged by the recruiting services. And I think. Again, that the talent at USC probably is better than ours. There's an argument; it's not as much as we thought. But if you can't put it together, if you can't tell them how to do it, because they're still 18 and 19 year old kids, a lot of bad stuff can happen at SC. Seeing that every minute, and even if they beat CU, I'm still enjoying that fall.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, they've got Notre Dame in a couple of weeks, so we'll we'll see how that particular game plays out for uh, USC. So, Neil, you were a good boy. You held off on predictions. Colorado is listed as a seven-point underdog, which considering CU is averaging against FBS competition seven points a game and USC is averaging 32 points a game, a seven-point spread doesn't seem to be anywhere close to being enthusiasm for the University of Colorado as much as it is an indictment of what's going on in Los Angeles. So how do you see Colorado versus USC playing at noon, which would be 11 o'clock body time for the Trojans? Not that that necessarily means anything, but how do you see the the game playing out Saturday afternoon in Folsom field?
1: Oh, good question. And, And just to build on your discussion of the odds, I was expecting USC to be somewhere in the neighborhood of a 12 or 14 point favorite. Yes. Or more simply because CU can't score. Right. So having a seven point spread and a 50 over, I just can't reconcile that. I can't see it being a 29 to 22 game. It just doesn't make any sense. So I think the odd makers just kind of threw a dart. <laughs> now, here with with this game, if we have a good crowd, an enthusiastic crowd that's loud and that if CU can have some early success and have some confidence, um, CU has a chance. And if CU can avoid big mistakes and make certain adjustments on offense and defense, I could see them squeaking out a win. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be USC probably by ten, at least 10 points. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 35, no, excuse me, 25 to 10, somewhere in there.
2: Okay, well, I'm sure there's lots of tickets sold for this game. that anticipation of having USC play, so there're going to be lots of USC people in the crowd. But I'm not sure how enthusiastic the Colorado crowd's going to be. It'd be interesting to see how the students show up for this game. They've, the students have been great. The Northern Colorado game. The students were amazing, and they showed up for the Minnesota game. They were there for the Texas A&M game in Denver. I'm not sure that the enthusiasm of the student section is going to be quite as high for a noon kickoff. Brad, do you think? Uh, you know, maybe punt return for a touchdown. A, a how about you know an actual turnover from the defense? We haven't seen that in a couple of games. Is there a formula for Colorado to pull off the upset against USC?
0: It has to be an unusual touchdown. A trick play, I assume we have some of those. A turnover muffed punt, we've seen those. Head-to-head, I still think USC is probably six, seven points better. But I think there is a chance. I'm still going to pick USC, but I think CU's closer.
2: Uh, 24-21 SC. Okay. It might take a a trick play or a muff pun or something like that to get to 21. Right. So, okay. And, of course, my tips will be in written form on Wednesday morning on the website. And, Neil, any words of wisdom from high atop Larimer Square before we let you go?
1: I think it's easy for dedicated fans, such as we have at the See You at the Game podcast, probably should adjust expectations for this year. Um, it's obviously going to be a long slog, even if there is improvement. And I think getting out into Folsom Field, enjoying the day, enjoying college football against a major program, try to enjoy that. And if CU plays well and gives a good co- account of themselves, win or lose, then you've had a good day. And I think that's the approach you need to take as a fan right now. Okay. Brad, do you want to
0: build on that? I will certainly build on that. Brennan Lewis is a freshman. Jarek Broussard is a sophomore. Go out. First of all, if you get bored, just put your binoculars on number 53. And remember that even on bad teams, extraordinary plays can be made. And yeah we are, we have clicked into rebuilding mode. Let's just
2: deal with that. Okay. Well, not the eternal optimism at this point, but uh, all it takes is one win for everybody to get excited again. So we'll let that be the, the last word. Thank you, Nia. We will talk to you again next week.
1: Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Stuart. Have a good week.
2: Thanks for listening. As a program note, Colorado has a bye next weekend. We will still post our normal review, being a recap of the USC game in a podcast next Tuesday. We will hold off on our preview, our tips for the Arizona game, until the following Tuesday. We will be coming up with additional content for both of those podcasts, so I hope you'll be with us. It's always tough to endure a losing streak, and Buff fans have had more than their fair share of those in recent years. I sincerely appreciate your sticking with your buffs and sticking with this podcast. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and go buffs!
0: Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to seeyouatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.